Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first ever collaboration between Red Menace and Mark's Madness. These are two podcasts which are close in heart. We sort of focus on some of the same things, but we have two very different styles. Um, Mark's Madness probably has a lot more of that fun energy than we have, uh, which I appreciate about the show a lot. This is going to be experimental for both of us. Um, we're, we're sort of abandoning both of our normal structures for our shows and sort of finding some sort of middle ground here. Uh, I'm going to sort of try to lead the, the conversation. But we are covering Mao's On Practice today. Um, before we get into the text itself, Mark's Madness, would you guys like to introduce yourselves and say a little bit about your show? I, I do love how we, we compare that they're different shows. Like, one is well-prepared and researched and obviously, per, like, thought out. And the other one is nonsense people talking under a closet and just screaming about whatever comes to mind. Yeah, that's thank you for being more generous to us than we deserve. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm Nathan. I'm the loud, obnoxious part of Mark's Madness. You can you can mute me now if you want to. Um, I, uh, I, in the, in the general elevator pitch for our show i would be the stupid one that did not know anything about uh marxism at all prior to 18 months ago when david drug me into this closet and forced me to start reading capital with him <laughs> and and now look at us now look yeah. at us doing things with real people it's amazing hooray, hooray. <laughs> i'm david uh i'm the uh much more uh well read when we started this venture of us that kind of drug nathan through capital um now we're starting to get into some books that uh going forward that I'm even new to, so it gets to be a little scary. We get to, to venture out on our own now, but uh, I'm uh, I'm kind of the, the the goofy one that you know will uh, will make too many food jokes and then like yeah. uh, turn around and, and make every you know historical reference I can to make up for it and sound smart. Also, <laughs> if there's a bad pun or a really really like deadpan sarcastic remark, that's me. Um, and and they'll probably get edited out, but David will hit me during them, and it's it's fun. It's good. It's good. That sounds awesome. Um, whenever you make a, a joke and we all laugh, I'm going to edit out all the laughter and just let it five seconds of silence please. follow every one of your jokes. <laughs> no, that's because honestly that, that will make me feel more comfortable, really, please. <laughs> all right, well, this is this is awesome. I'm going to let Allison introduce herself in a second. I do want to say that this, you know, I think Mark's Madness fits really, really well in this new sort of rising ML podcast trifecta of Red Menace, Proles Pod, and Mark's Madness. And so and this is really cool that we're getting to, to do it. And hopefully I can see um, collabs between Proles Pod and Mark's Madness in the future because I think you guys would have a funny, hilarious, wonderful show together. Um, but Equal, Allison, Equally amounts of drinking. That's yeah. right. That's right. Fueled by alcohol. Allison, uh, for people that don't know who you are, whoever those people may be, uh, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> How did you get here? Right, so uh, I'm Allison. I'm normally Brett's co-host on Red Menace, and yeah, I mean that's mostly what I do. I write stuff on my blog, and I also was on Rev Left a few times before we started collaborating. And I'm honestly really excited for this. I've been kind of deep diving on Mao recently, and I am really, really ready for this conversation. Awesome. Yeah, we just uh, we just did on contradiction on Red Menace, and that should be out very soon. We're almost done with the editing process. And so jumping from on contradiction to on practice is natural. And it's sort of, you know, reading both pieces together really helps you understand the opposite piece really well. Uh, so I really appreciated that. Any Does anybody have any like opening thoughts? What are your initial reactions to reading Mao or reading on practice? Uh, I'm I'm a big person. I mean, Nathan says he lives for context, and I think he maybe does more than me, but I'm yeah. a big person on context. And so it was really interesting to uh, kind of tie this work uh, to the context because it was in China. It was right uh, 
right after the uh, Communist Party of China had taken uh, Yunnan, which became kind of their their headquarters. And so it was kind of interesting reading about this and thinking about like this great successful revolution with the largest population in the whole world started from such a small amount of people. And even they were dealing with like, you haven't done anything. What the hell are you talking about, people? You know, and it just it makes you feel so much better about now because sometimes it feels hopeless. You're sitting there talking about people and you're like, how how would you be this, you know, um, dogmatic about stuff when when there's a real world out there, and so I I really really enjoyed this this book for that because uh, it it really made me feel a lot better in a world where there's you know doctrinaire Marxists out there screaming about how blah 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 is not socialist enough, and it's like no, this is a real world here, guys. It yeah. gave me hope that Twitter's not the real world and that there is hope for us <laughs> if we actually do some actual fucking work. Yeah. I think we'll definitely get to that later because uh, some of these things that he's talking about having to deal with shitty aspects of the left are absolutely not at all gone in our, in our present life. A- Allison, what, what were your uh, initial thoughts reading on practice? Yeah, so I mean, I guess I was reading it largely in the context of having just finished On Contradiction, right? And I think it's really interesting to see sort of the epistemology that Mao builds into On Contradiction really fleshed out. Sort of when I first encountered this text was in grad school, actually, and it was in the context of me and a few friends sort of being shocked by like, wow, Mao was like this really thorough philosopher, and no one ever really told us about that. And you get into the text, and there's a really profound just theory of knowledge here that I think is way beyond what people expect from, you know, a revolutionary theorist. Like, it's intense philosophical detail. That's really impressive. Yeah, I totally agree. I was I was taken aback. I mean, once we started reading On Contradiction, I was really impressed with Mao's philosophical ability. And here again, um, I'm really interested in how he's he's really not only dealing with politics, I mean, he's dealing with other subfields in philosophy. He's talking about rationalism and empiricism and contradicting, you know, his his theory of knowledge or the Marxist theory of knowledge to those other predominant theories of knowledge. I thought it was really interesting, really well said. I mean, this is somebody who's writing about complex stuff, but he does it in such an accessible clear, sober-minded way that, you know, almost anybody could pick this text up and understand to some extent what, what he's saying. And I think, as Allison pointed out in our On Contradiction episode, that's a huge strength of, of Mao altogether. And that's something that, insofar as we can replicate that in our own work, we absolutely should. Absolutely. And I think that's, that, I mean, that was the striking thing, again, coming, I, I have a philosophy undergraduate degree. So again, Allison bests me in that field quite, quite handily, I would imagine. <laughs> but, uh, but, but from, it was kind of, it was, it was kind of horrible that I'm going back through all of my undergrad stuff and going, wait, oh, hold on. Now, why the hell didn't we get to read this? Why wasn't <laughs> right. this included? Like, this is such a more concise and accessible, ver- like you're, you're giving me Hegel and I could be reading this. Why, why did you do that to me? But it's, it struck me really Mao and Stalin both, I think had that quality where it was, you know, very, very like profound ideas spoken very plainly. And I think that's powerful. And I think that's something we, kind of sometimes lose sight of like I, I think we're kind of trying to reinvent the wheel a little too much and and the way they could just talk to everybody was so powerful in this work especially yeah uh, speaking for myself and my own philosophy training um, as an undergrad as well like I, I spent weeks learning about logical positivism and and never oh, never don't once you do that to me Brad. I, know, no. I hated it I hated don't it. drag me back there <laughs> it's the worst part That's of my, my Vietnam. Experience. no <laughs> That's my Vietnam. Yeah, so it's it's so sad that I had to spend so much time learning about that, but never once was Mao even mentioned. It's crazy. All right, well, let's just go ahead and, and dive into it with regards to maybe laying out what 
Mao lays out, which is sort of this Marxist theory of knowledge. So if anybody wants to take a first shot at, at sort of summarizing uh, ba- the basics of the Marxist theory of knowledge as laid out in this text, uh, have a go at it. Um, Please be anyone other than us, because we just read it and yell. If you ask us to synthesize something, we're going to fail. I mean, I'm down to maybe we could start with one of the really early claims he makes about the relationship between production and knowledge, since that's sort of what he's building off of. Maybe we could try to unpack that. Yeah, please do. That I had a little sounds trouble well with that thought out and prepared. Thank you, Allison. <laughs> totally. So for this is actually just the second paragraph in the text. I'm just going to go ahead and take the beginning of it. So Mao starts by saying that, quote, above all, Marxists regard man's activity in production as those fundamental practical activity, the determinant of all his other activities. And then man's knowledge depends mainly on his activity in material production, though which he through which he comes gradually to understand the phenomena, the properties, the laws of nature, and the relations between himself and nature. And through his activity in production, he also gradually comes to understand, in varying degrees, certain relations that exist between man and man. None of this knowledge can be acquired apart from activity in production, end quote. So that seems to me like a pretty central starting claim that maybe we can try to wrestle with a little bit yeah so i'll just i'll just take my first uh, stab at that you know at first i was sort of thrown off because if you think of production in in the narrowest terms it can sort of be like wait all knowledge depends on our activity doing production is that really true how far back does that go but i think if we and as, as you read on he sort of makes this clear i think um that material production in the broadest sense of the word is like how do humans sort of you know, get their material necessities? Mm-hmm. How do they How do they engage with the natural world in such a way as to extend their own life, to get food, to, to build shelter and clothing and have communities? And in that broad, deep sense of just productive work with nature itself, I think you can sort of see the starting point um, of Marxist theory of knowledge that Mao is starting with here. Do you agree with that? Am, am I off here? Does is, is he mean it in a narrower sense? No, I don't. And that's what I kind of the whole thing when I was going there, I was like, because I, I jumped in. This is and spoiler alert. This is the first Mao other I've been I, I have the little red book and I flip through it occasionally at work just to piss off coworkers. Uh, but other than that, uh, it this is the first real deep Mao I've gotten. And this being the second paragraph, I'm like, oh, no, uh, nobody told me we were going back to this. I did not expect that we were going to do like a basis of like we're going Rene Descartes. How do I know what I know nonsense right, right now? Like, are you kidding me, Mao? OK. Um, but no, it's like you, the, you're right. Brad, like the more you interrogate, it's like, no, that's it's it is that broad. It's and he gets to it. He and like any good Marxist, what he kind of he builds on it as he goes. But it's, you know, well, how does anyone know anything? Well, someone somewhere had to do it before you can know it. You had to experience it. But it's that combination of experience and theory and, you know, all coming together that really kind of makes it all gel. Yeah, as the guy who has, like, no philosophy schooling here has got all the readings. I really like, you know, right after that, and this kind of leapfrogs off that, when uh, Mao says, man's social practice is not confined to activity and production, but takes many other forms, class struggle, political life, scientific and artistic pursuits. In short, as a social being, man participates in all spheres of the practical life of society. So you kind of see how, you know, we're kind of bouncing things off each other. How do you come to know people, right? Growing up, it was people. You went to school. That was kind of your your form of production. You were learning. You were becoming the person you were going to be in the world. And now it's going to be politics. You know, it's getting what you need, just like through production. It's going to be work, of course, production. Um, It's going to be scientific pursuits, you know, learning and understanding. All these things and all these interactions that you happen every day that makes you a whole social being. And that is where you're learning. Yeah. 
And I think an implication, or Allison, do you have anything to say? I'm sorry. I know you summarized it, but you didn't really reflect on it too much. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I was just going to add that I think the emphasis on production also is kind of interjecting into sort of a lot of the ways that I feel like, especially in the West, we think about knowledge is sort of this passive process of taking things in, right? Like epistemology often, since impression is just a passive thing you gain. And I think for what we see in Mao is that this really interesting reformulation of it where, you know, what he's saying when he's focusing on production and the social life of man is that knowledge is something that comes from doing, not just passive observation. And that seems like right off the bat a really big interjection into the field of epistemology yeah absolutely and that's going to be like the the sort of cornerstone of the marxist theory of knowledge broadly one thing i think of if you're sort of like understanding the marxist theory of knowledge and then casting it back over the anthropological history of human beings you know one, one of the big things from a marxist perspective that that humans did and that some animals do to lesser extents at this even presently is the sort of use of tools right if we take seriously this idea that that the knowledge begins in material production then when when hominids you know had tools and started using tools in their environment to build things you can really see that as like the starting point of some, in some sense of human civilization as we know it as opposed to other theories that might say it was the development of language for example that gave rise to you know the modern human beings etc so that's just an interesting aside um so let's see here trying to find my bearings any, anybody else have anything to say? No, about I was this? about to say, good I, luck. This is a this is a rocky ship in the sea. We just right. hang on and we hope for the best. I was going to say, here's the throws of doing this with me and Nathan. Is I you know bounce ideas yeah, off that, that, that nonsense that, 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 talk for an hour. Um, Come on, when now. you're talking about that, I even hear that and I hear language, and it's like, well, what? what what is the point of language? They say society starts with language. Well, what don't, did language do? Don't, don't, you take me down this Wittgenstein hole and you have, I swear to God I will come across this table with you. But I mean, you're talking about like, how are we going to get food? How are we going to eat? You know, how, where are we going to sleep? That, that's where language is coming from, you know? Yeah. So it's all, even on that rail, all production. Yep. Yeah. And, and even, even the development of fire can be seen as a, a crucial tool in the toolbox of human beings when we started using it to cook food and, and you know, going along with that process so yeah a lot of those things are all all deeply deeply interconnected um moving on kind of building on that do you guys want to talk about maybe the the stages of cognition maybe allison can can summarize uh how mao thinks we start and then develop knowledge yeah, I can look at that a little bit. So yeah, we can talk through some of the steps that he goes through. So Mao kind of breaks it up into starting with sort of phenomenal experiences and what he calls the external relation of things, which we'll get into a little bit more depth. Then he gets into how sense perception arise from that, which kind of allows us to move past immediate phenomena and then form more abstract concepts that we can actually, you know, put back into the world. Then on top of that, Mao kind of talks about this idea of rational knowledge, which then is developed even on top of that. And argues that knowledge must rise to the level of rationality. And then finally, he kind of says that this rational knowledge needs to be enacted in practice. It can't be the end point. We have to apply it in order to see if it creates change in the world. And it's that practice that sort of is the culmination of sort of knowledge. So that's kind of how I see his outline of the steps and stages in the development of knowledge. No, and that's definitely, I mean, it's it's really... Again, this is, I, I feel like, Dave, this is the first time I get to feel like I'm in the majority side over here. Where it's like, actual philosophy talk! Holy cow! It's useful! Um, but no, it's, it's very basic. It's a very basic building block. Style, but it, it, again, the way Mao's about to, and the thing I think the powerful part of this work is that, again, if you've never encountered philosophy before, those stages of, of well, how do I, yeah, that it all feels very 
intuitive to a certain extent and it feels very okay yeah i can see that yeah i can see that which again is one of the huge strikes i think of marxism in general is that it's it's logical appeal is so well laid out that it, it really kind of will, will baby step you to the point where and then but then what he's about to do with it i think is really what's interesting sure. is because he he really like he builds a very basic yep i've got you i've got you and i have you yes you agree with that and now look why that's important in the real world you jerks yeah. Which I feel like most yeah. philosophy doesn't end up doing. It just does it for fun, and that annoyed me. <laughs> well, that was, uh, I'm trying to think of the Marx work where he said that, but Marx basically said, like, what is the point of philosophy if not to be revolutionary? Yeah. You know? Sure, yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean that's that's kind of the idea, right? If you're not if you're not putting it in, that that's the beautiful overarching that Mao has here is if you're not putting it into practice, how do you know mm-hmm. it's right? Your philosophy's incomplete even on that level. But also if you're not going out and, and, and doing it, why? Yeah, you know it's it's all a matter of building knowledge, building knowledge to get this goal done. Yeah, and and that that emphasis on on practice as being a part of the generative process of knowledge, that you know, Marx in that famous quote that you're referring to, the philosophers have only hitherto interpreted the world. The point is to change it. Mao takes that and really develops that into a, a, a really accessible epistemology, and he even says in the text, "quote The reason why Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Stalin could work out their theories was mainly that they personally took part in the practice of the class struggle and the scientific experience." experimentation of their time. If you want to know a certain thing or a certain class of things directly, you must personally participate in the practical struggle to change reality. And I think that that part about changing reality comes up again and again. And one of the ways that I orient myself to this is, um, is, is physics, right? And, and this is an example of why I don't reach this status of, of knowledge in the field of <laughs> physics, because I am fascinated and, and study, spend hours every week listening to lectures about, you know, theoretical physics, astrophysics, cosmology. But at the end of the day, I cannot directly participate in the construction of physics knowledge myself because I have no aptitude whatsoever for math, right? And so if I wanted to actually get into the field of physics and to change the field of physics, to change people's knowledge and advance that field of knowledge, I would have to understand the math, which would allow me to directly engage with the material itself and on some level. That's that's at least one way to, to, to think about it. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts on that and the role specifically that changing reality plays in this epistemology? Yeah, um, I think changing reality is just it's if it's not your goal, there, there's no point. But also, it, it's something that we didn't really examine with that when I hear changing reality is how how stark it is, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we're doing here. It's huge. Yeah, yeah it is a massive you know, and and even and he breaks down. I mean, he talks about. It, you know, to make an atom, you know, to, to explain the atom, you have to ch- yeah. go in and change the atom. You have to experiment. You have to do that with everything. And that constant talk of, well, yeah, of course. That, and that just, again, it's just one of those things that's like <laughs> the greatness of Marx is like, it's, it's like, well, duh, of course that's obvious. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait, huh? Wait, did I disagree with them? Oh, shit. <laughs> um, is, is well, yeah, of course. If, if you haven't done a thing, how the heck are you going to talk about a thing? How the heck are you going to be the authority on that thing? And he, it's, it's, it was really funny where he, uh, he starts talking about, you know, oh, the, the scholar that can know everything without leaving yeah. his door. And he's like, well, modern technology has made that possible. And I'm like, shh, dude, you didn't even have Wikipedia, Mal. You, you had no idea how good it was going to get. We have all sorts of stuff now, man. Um, but it's it's that same thing. Is it? But I think that's fueled 
and, and again, we're gonna. I'm probably jumping ahead here, but that's that fuels that that really negative thing that Mao talks about, which is that the the great know it all and all of that fun fun nonsense there. Because I do think that that easy accessibility of knowledge has kind of led to everybody kind of thinking that we have a little bit of it, and therefore we have all of it. Yeah, uh, something that the line that Nathan was talking about um, with the atom, and I, I want to expand on that because I really love that line, is if you, want to, if you want knowledge, you must take part in the practice of changing reality. If you want to know the taste of a pear, you must change the pear by eating it yourself. If you want to know the structure properties of an atom, you must take the physical and chemical experiments to change the state of the atom. If you want to know the theory and methods of revolution, you must take part in revolution. Um, and that's that's something that I, I really like. This whole this whole work is uh, not to put too vulgar of a point on it, but this whole work is is a practice in smelling bullshit, kind of. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, if you if you're out yeah. there and you're doing it, <laughs> you know, someone can say something and it can sound profound, but if you've done it, you're just like, what? No, no, dude, no, just sit down, right? Yeah. And that's and that's what this whole work is. You know, he talks about the smug, arrogant person who came in thinking they can lead on the first day versus the people who have failed and, and have had to learn to lead, you know, and it's it's all kind of in that same flow. Yep. Well, sort of coming from that last idea, I think also that you hit on something really interesting, right? Which is they think this text gets at this idea that failure is part of the learning process in a really cool way. And that idea that, yeah, you have to not just be active, but you have to also see the limits of your ideas by participating in revolution. So I think what's cool with Mao that you get over and over again is this idea that setbacks are a learning opportunity that can further our knowledge. And that, you know, when we even get pushback from other people, that's something that produces better knowledge. And so there's this cool focus, I think, that he has on way that activity and participation, even when they feel maybe subjectively like negative experiences, still sharpen knowledge further. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was also thinking, going back to Allison's summary in the beginning, a little bit touched on it, which is these sort of stages of cognition. And, and Mao talks about, you know, starting from the perceptual stage where you're analyzing individual things to the rational or logical stage where you begin to understand the laws and the internal motions and contradictions of things. And then you can go back down to those things and, and study them with that higher understanding, that higher law in mind. And I use this example in the on contradiction episode, but a one way to understand this for people who might still be struggling with this is uh, Darwinian evolution, right? This idea that the, the process by which we came to understand evolution via natural selection, you know, Darwin was looking at a bunch of different animals, a bunch of different environments, was piecing together a theory. And when he finally, you know, put forward this, this evolutionary theory via natural selection, then having gone up from the perceptual stage of individual animals and environments to the sort of rational or the logical or the lawmaking stage where you can sort of see the connection between things, right? That's where we get the law of evolution via natural selection. And then what do you do? You go back down to the individual phenomena and you understand them through the lens of that law that you just established in this cyclical sort of a sort of cyclical understanding of knowledge. I think of it as sort of like a DNA strand, right? Because he talks about how every cycle of knowledge isn't just sort of static or, or on one plane, but it actually, you get to a higher level. Uh, you'll still have contradictions. You'll still have problems that the, the sort of the, the march carries on, but you're dealing with different problems. You're at a higher stage of, of development. Um, and I'm just going to read this quote because it applies that very, understanding to to capitalism and communism. So Mao says, 
In its knowledge of capitalist society, the proletariat was only in the perceptual stage of cognition in the first period of its practice, the period of machine smashing and spontaneous struggle. It knew only some of the aspects and external relations of the phenomenon known as capitalism. The proletariat was then still a class in itself. But when it reached the second period of its practice, the period of conscious and organized economic and political struggles, the proletariat was able to comprehend the essence of capitalist society, the relations of exploitation between social classes and its own historical task. And it was able to do so because of its own practice and because of its experience of prolonged struggle, which Marx and Engels scientifically summed up in all its variety to create the theory of Marxism for the education of the proletariat. It was then that the proletariat became a class class for itself. And so that is that 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 sort of understanding of how knowledge progresses applied to capitalism as we know it. Yeah. Now, it I, does sound a lot like you guys are talking about a lot of sciencey terms and uh, if there's <laughs> one thing I know coming from the humanities is that Marxism is not a science, damn it. Why are we talking with the, why are we talking with all this science nonsense? Hey, me and Allison the, already handled this situation. We already dealt with yes, it. Yes, no, no. That, that was that was the Nathan says a dumb thing intentionally possible. <laughs> Welcome. They're fun. Um but, They're not. No one likes them. <laughs> but I like. I I, I kind of want to leapfrog off that too because I also like this other part that kind of came from it. And uh, where Mao says, "Our practice proves that what is perceived cannot at once be comprehended, and that what is comprehended can only more deeply." perceived. Perception only solves the problem of phenomenon. Theory alone can solve the problem of essence. The solving of both of these problems is not separable in the slightest degree from practice. So, I mean, and that's kind of touching on the point, a little bit of a two-way thing that we haven't gotten a lot of the two-way where it's like, well, theory doesn't mean anything without practice, the overarching part of this, but that practice needs theory to really, to to get its oomph, to get at the core. But even when you're saying that practice needs theory, that's still inherently tied to practice because that theory came from practice it was just someone else's direct learning from that practice that that's infused now with your direct learning so it's always always tied to practice yeah i mean i think that's kind of what's so interesting too is it's that cyclical idea that even brett brought up right that even no matter what the result of your practice is you return to theory afterwards to revise accordingly and it's sort of like i I think it's really cool because it's almost an unending process of knowledge development where it's practice theory and that dialectical move back and forth that's really i think unique to the marxist view of knowledge yeah and one one of my things that I love so much is is how much Mao shits on mechanical materialism. And, God, uh, yes! It's so good because Mao is the sort of wonderful example of a dialectical thinker. And, mm-hmm. and yes. you know, when, when you abandon the dialectical thinking flexibility that Mao really puts on display here, you see a lot of Marxists fall prey to what he calls mechanical Marxism, which is sort of turning a dialectic into a dogma and not really having this constant process of learning and knowledge, which Mao also says is what is what's essential to that entire process is, is modesty, is humility, is being humble. And the moment that you jettison that humility um, in any direction, you're going to have some deformed version where you fall out of the dialectical sort of thing. You become a subjectivist of, of one sort or another. And I think that's a really important part of, of this entire theory of knowledge, that humility that he emphasizes so regularly. Yeah, I mean, that was it was like, I, again, I go back to it. I'm just reading this and it's like, oh, oh wait, you just took all the <laughs> shitty schools and it's like you, you were able to synthesize them into one thing. And this keeps happening over and over again in Marxism. It's like. 
right, everyone stop looking like it all balances itself out. It all fights against each other, and that's how we move forward. Like, why do you people keep ignoring this? Just just look. <laughs> you, just look at the thing. We put it in front of you. It's there. Do it. Find all this other theory that sucks and go, what catches people? Oh, that part that's kind of right. Well, let's assemble that all together like Legos. Go. Voltron, go! <laughs> <laughs> It is so cool, though, the way he does that synthesis, right? Because, like, thinking back to my undergrad classes in philosophy, it's just constantly reiterating this empiricism versus rationalism divide that's so big in Western philosophy. And it's really awesome just seeing Mao be like, well, rationalism is part of the process of developing thought, and empiricism is another part of it, but both of those don't fit the whole story, and we have to understand them in a dialectical relationship to each other. And it just reframes all this boring reading of Hume and Locke and Descartes and Barclay and all these people people in a way where I finally feel like they're kind of useful for once. Yeah. Oh, see, good. I'm glad you had <laughs> that opinion, Allison, because my opinion was that, oh, God, they just made it worthless. They made my entire four-year undergrad <laughs> really? worthless with three paragraphs, because Matt was like, ignore all of them, just put it together and use both sides of it. It's not a, it's not a battle of the bests on both sides. It's just... Ah, uh, let's take them both and put them out. Like, why not have chocolate and peanut butter? Let's make them great. And, like, do that. I was just so mad. I was like, this wasn't my capstone. This wasn't the end of it. Like, by the way, I know I made you think one of them had to win over the years. It's not. They come together and make a beautiful right. baby. It's called Marxism. But, no, I went to one of those sweet liberal colleges where they just pump Hume down my throat for eight yeah. four solid years. <laughs> Well, that, but the, college is making us all college is making us all wild communist guys. Don't let me don't, don't get it twisted. Again, as as the guy who's not uh, studied any philosophy formally, I'm hearing all that and I'm just thinking like it's a huge allegory for the political parties where they're all like digging at each other, digging at each other. They don't mean crap. <laughs> no, but the problem is that the Democrats and the Republicans don't synthesize and form a way forward. Right. They just come together and melt away into some weird Ark of the Covenant blob. Oh, they they do. You just need to know that form forward is the enemy, and you need to like. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. No, all right, yeah. that that works. I'll take that. That's right. <laughs> Deep thought from the non-philosophy guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> thinking about the, 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 uh, the, the point about the philosophy and what we were taught and how we were taught it, you know, looking back at your philosophy training through the dialectical lens, you can see the history of philosophy as this dialectical development where humanity, through philosophy, the prism of philosophy is trying to come to these conclusions, trying to understand itself and the world around itself. And so you can look at Kant and Hume and Descartes and all of them in that context and see, oh, well, they were all doing the thing. I mean, they, they were part of this broader process. And only by looking back over it dialectically can you really come to really respect and see the value in all these different positions that were, you know, put forward by these geniuses, you know. All right. Thank you, Brett. You've now made my degree feel less worthless. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, really quick, though, Allison, I know you're really good at this. Maybe for people who don't have this philosophy training, can you quickly just talk about what rationalism and empiricism is in this context? And Sure. So this will be maybe a little bit of a repeat of some of what we talked about in the On Contradiction episode. But so I guess within European philosophy specifically is the context in which I learned it. The sort of main divide in epistemology, so in the theory of knowledge, is between rationalism, which is probably best embodied in Descartes, uh, which is sort of the idea that to come to knowledge it is a purely rational reflective act that essentially takes place in consciousness. So if you've ever had the misfortune of reading Descartes' meditations, uh, Descartes <laughs> 
doubts literally everything, all of his experiences, and he says he has to start with rational thought to get to truth, which is why the famous sort of Cartesian phrase is, I think, therefore I am. That's a thought that doesn't require sense impression, doesn't require the world to affect me. It's a thought that's just true on the basis of rationality. So that's kind of the epitome of the rationalist project. And then on the empiricist side, you have this epistemological view that says knowledge comes from our sense impressions. And you have thinkers like Locke and Hume who really develop this, with Hume going so far as to say, objects are just a bundle of all of the sense impressions they give to me. An apple is redness and sweetness and the smell of an apple. There's not necessarily an essence which makes it up. All I can know are the impressions, and that's where all knowledge comes from. And so you kind of have this debate between these two uh, philosophical schools about how we can possibly know things, where they're really going at each other pretty intensely. And those are sort of the two ideas that I think Mao is actually synthesizing into an actually dialectical and materialist position. Exactly. Very well said. Yeah, so, and uh, just as someone that that is, is catching a little bit of that for the first time, I'm hearing, like, the the whole like smugness of Ben Shapiro versus like oh, if, why? A, if a tree Don't, falls in the it. forest and no one hears it does it really fall <laughs> oh. and I'm just like oh god thank god we got past that no 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 don't get it don't get it twisted <laughs> everyone on the libertarian right are are like under like first year undergraduate philosophy right. students who think they figured it all out and stopped exactly that's every single one of them just to like a they do with the god it's amazing oh now I feel dirty. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's incredibly true though i mean that sort of right libertarianism is so weak it's so unthought out it's so non-robust and as much as it wants to pretend that it's some intellectual pursuit or this is you know representative of conservative intellectualism any prodding or looking into it whatsoever it just all falls apart it's just because Atlas Shrugged is really long and no one else wants to read it. That's all it is. They just point to that. It's their version of Capital, and it's just, but it's bad. And I've read them both, so I can say that. No, I mean, honestly, though, if you look to, like, you know, the theory of knowledge that Ayn Rand develops with objectivism, right, it's so much just more boring than what Mao is giving us. Like, Thank Rand you. just starts with this truism of A is A, and we can know objective statements with no real reflection on, like, the process of getting there. And then with Mao, you have this incredibly dynamic and, again, much more humble project that's getting developed. And it's just shocking, the difference in theoretical depth. Yeah, you know, Mao does not make you sort of take on board any abstraction to begin the project. Like, you know, you'll, you'll hear these these political theories, especially liberal political theories that, you know, want to talk about the veil of ignorance or the state of nature or the social contract. These, these abstractions on top of abstractions, which a lot of times are used as the starting point for their philosophy. And when you have such, you know, abstractions as your starting point, you're almost always going to be led to some form of idealism, which, which is just you know, representative of liberal philosophy broadly. Well, yeah, something else there too is, is liberalism. It, it really takes on something where words aren't just something with meaning and actual real world impact, but they can, they can truly be weaponized. And me and Nathan always touch on like uh-huh. foreign policy stuff all the time. Oh, and you can always just say human rights, human rights, human rights with, you know, liberalism and um, something, you know, me and Nathan are, are it, we're recording it today, but uh, <laughs> it'll be out before this episode. Yeah. We'll be talking about, uh, it, since we're going to be touching on, on our other episode with Walter Rodney, you know, we'll be touching on a little bit of Zimbabwe and how Mugabe was deposed a year and a half ago. And, it, you know, it was, oh, the, the horrible thieving these, these farmers' land and destroying this economy. And he was lowering exports to raise the quality of life of 
people in that country, and he was taking land from white landowning, exploiting farmers, and giving it to local African people. You know, um, but it was a human rights violation. I mean, everything you can just do that that kind of thing with words with liberalism because you've got this enlightened term, and you can just club anything you can with it. And what do people know better? Exactly yeah. right. All right, does anybody want to say more about the, the theory of knowledge or the specifics of it before we get on to – I want to get into you know, talking about its implications for you know, theory and practice today or how this directly relates to you know, the communist struggle overall. But is there anything else you want to make, talk about epistemology before we move in that direction? Uh, I was going to maybe give like one more maybe simpler example for people to understand in terms of if they're having trouble with the abstract structure of development of logic that Mao talks about. Um, Cool. So th- this is maybe silly, but there's this YouTube channel that I watch that I really like. I don't know if anyone watches Mike Boyd, um, but his whole thing is that every like month he picks a new skill to learn and he'll sort of pick things like card throwing or something like that. And I actually think you can see Mao's theory of knowledge map onto these little like five minute videos about learning a new skill where like if you watch his card throwing video that starts really with the perceptual level, he picks up the card, he feels his its weight, he's getting a sense for it. And then he just kind of takes a throw with it with no clue what's going to happen. And as he does that a few times, it gets to that second level of knowledge with the sense impression where he's feeling the weight of it in the throw. He's feeling how it can work and he starts starts to come up with abstract concepts of if I spin it this way a little bit when I throw it, then it's actually going to fly better. And actually, as he moves on, he usually ends up coming up with kind of a comprehensive list of techniques and moving on to this rational level where he's starting to get into what the physics of it are after experiencing all of it. And at the end, it really goes back to practice. And he has this skill that he's learned that he's really good at following those same levels. And I think, again, it maps onto Mao because at each point, he's going back to that activity. So with the card throwing, even after he comes up with the abstract ideas about how a card might move through the air, he has to test that by actually throwing it, and it's only confirmed once the practice is actually working out. And so I think this theory of knowledge actually maps onto really simple task learning in a really interesting way as well. Fascinating. I'll have to look that up. That sounds yeah. that sounds incredibly unique and interesting. Um, I, I know that this whole thing applies very well to to me as a parent, you know, this sort of process of learning. Because <laughs> you, yeah. you, you enter, you really yep. do, you enter parenthood with a bunch of abstract ideals about how you're going to do this, how you're going to navigate that problem. And it's so easy to point to another parent and say, you know, I would never do it that way. I'll do it this way. But when you have kids, it's sort of that dialectical process begins to happen. You try things and, hey, what worked with my daughter, who is now, you know, 10, does not work with my four-year-old son. And so I have to switch it up. I have to come back. I have to learn new tactics and then approach it and see what works and what doesn't. So in like every field of learning, you can see this process take place and it really helps clarify uh, what Mao is, is, is talking about throughout this text. I love the parenting yeah. examples. Yeah. <laughs> me and David just sitting in the cave go, me looking around seeing if my child has snuck into the cave. <laughs> <somehow>. <laughs> no! <laughs> it's too real now. Oh. <laughs> it's too close to home. I was I was the fun uncle that like, oh, I'm going to be a good parent. All the kids play with me. And then I started having kids. I was like, oh, my God, what did I do? Exactly. <laughs> Start apologizing to random brothers and sisters. I apologize for what I'm I have sorry. done to you. <laughs> the dialectics have taught me better. You are... You Yes, we're moving forward. <laughs> Positives. All right. Is there anything else we want to touch on before we move on? No, and I, I, I don't like that you made me relive my empiricism. <laughs> I, I, I don't blame you for this, but I'll blame Mao for this post. Like, I, I, I should get a, a, re, a retroactive increase to my GPA for, for this last 20 minutes. <laughs> for real. All right. So let's move on and talk about the implications for revolutionary theory 
and practice. You know, this idea that you must take part in something to understand it, etc. And maybe I'll I'll do the opening salvo here because I want to I want to focus on that part, right? He says, you know, you must take part in a thing to understand it and and this, you know, leads inevitably to this idea that you must take part in class struggle or even better full-on revolutions to understand these things deeply. And I think that what makes us MLs and what makes me and ML what attracted me to Marxism, Leninism, and to start reading people like Lenin and Mao and Marx and Engels is precisely because they were involved in this struggle and their theories and their strategies come out of actually engaging with these processes, not standing back and having some subjectivist hallucinations about what world you want to make and starting from there. And so, you know, I think that is the, the huge benefit uh, to the theory of ML and MLM is that what we, who we look to to guide us, who we look to to learn theory are the people who have actually taken part not only in class struggles, which I think all of us have taken part in in various ways, but world historical revolutions, right? Successful topplings of the capitalist society and the, and the beginning of the construction of socialism. And that, I think, is unique to ML and MLM, specifically on the left. And that's what's really frustrating when you get, uh, again, when you get into the fun, because I feel like that's half of the job these days is, oh, good, it's it's Twitter arguments amongst a group of people that should agree with each other. Um, <laughs> but it's it's like, it's not, when we, when, uh, you know, reading, again, as I look up at my fun picture of Stalin that we have up in the cave, you know, <laughs> this is not, it, it, as much as it feels like we we distill it down to, na- you know, individual names, and that sounds like a weird, great man, I, it, it's it's not like we listen to these people, and it's. I mean, David had been saying this a long time when we first started the podcast. You know, we don't read Marx because he's Marx. We read Marx because he's right. We don't read Lenin because he's Lenin. We read Lenin because he did the damn thing, and then he wrote us a book about how he did it, guys. Yeah. Like it's a fucking instruction manual from someone that pulled it off. Why would you not? You would have to be an idiot not to look to that and not to read mm-hmm. that. And yes, you obviously take in you know the exterior other people too that have been part of the, you know the revolution, but. You know, we we happen to have you know a a handful of impact super impactful revolutionaries that wrote pretty prolifically. Of course, we're gonna fucking look to that. If we weren't, we would again. That the whole thing is you fail, you repeat, and and you know obviously I don't think they don't Lenin especially just didn't get the time to you know reflect too much mm-hmm. on what happened before he passed, but. You know, again, learning, okay, well, here's what they did really well, and then you have to kind of armchair back and go, well, I would do, again, but that's everything we do, is we're armchair quarterbacking, well, I would do the Russian Revolution this way, and it right. would be better. It's like, motherfucker, no, you wouldn't, you're not, these, these guys were doing it, don't yeah. don't tell me you would and again, Mao just gets into that, it's like, no, you're not gonna, only, only an arrogant idiot would walk in and say, no, I can totally do this better without mm-hmm. ever having been a part of a revolution, and just unfortunately, most people, especially people in the West, especially super, especially people in the United States, and hyper, especially people sitting in a closet in the middle of fucking Missouri, <laughs> don't get to make comments on what freaking like we don't get to comment on how someone else did socialism. We can, you know, we can take that in and absorb it into if you know when the revolution comes and we get a chance to participate now. But it, the concept of being able to you know sit back and go, oh, they did this completely wrong, and I know I'm I've got this now because I've I've read four threads on Twitter. I've got this today. <laughs> like it's just it's just crazy exactly. to a certain extent, yeah. right? 
it's so interesting too because I feel like with a lot of like tendencies, especially more on the ultra left side, it's this idea that like if we can find the one historically forgotten obscure theorist who was sort of peripheral to a movement <laughs> and revive them, then that's going to fix the entire thing. Oh, it's just God. so the opposite of what I really oh. think you should be looking to in order yeah. to figure this out. Yeah, look at all the fail sons of history and find which one of them kind right. of sort of made sense but never got enough attention. I think right. I think that's that's where you get revivals of Bakarin and Rosa. Luxembourg a lot and yeah. stuff too. It's like there's there's good points in some of those theories. Just the mm-hmm. totality is mistaken. But then people go, oh, but they're they're not the Marxist-Leninists, so we can make them one of the good. Don't ones. get it twisted. A couple months yeah. ago, I think Jackman tried to resurrect Kautsky as a good guy to oh follow. My God. I don't want to. I don't know. We'll do it with everybody. It's, it's coming across the board. <laughs> well, there, there's two things there that I, I think are important. Is like. That represents, in some cases, a sort of subcultural impulse, right? Like, uh, I, I want to, fing, to find the thing and be into the thing that nobody else is into. And that's big in our popular culture broadly, and so that gets manifested on the left in that way. And it's also, as Mao talks about, a sort of subjectivist error. If, if what you're looking for is to find something that is super obscure, that nobody else really knows about, that you can know a lot about, and that can be your tendency, and that can be your identity, then you're really putting the cart before for the horse you're you're putting your own per- personal subjective preferences ahead of actual humble study and and self-education and that's always going to be a problem and then with the whole like not even like reading Lenin and Mao and disagreeing with them, which is totally fine and understandable to some extent, but just the off-the-hand dismissal of Lenin and Mao that you see from so many aspects of the left, I think speaks directly to that point that Mark's Madness, one of you guys made earlier about these liberal words and terms and how they're used. You know, you use the example of, of human rights and it's just sort of a conversation ender. Well, we have our own terms in our own little sphere of the left politics, and that's words like authoritarian. You know, these words that have no meaning in a vacuum can be hurled at these these thinkers and these movements and ju- that's just a way to to not think about these things but to just get that concept out of the way so you can talk about other things and so that liberal impulse pops up in our left circles in exactly that way yeah 100% uh, yeah something else that uh, that that makes me think of is is the idea that people always want to have like the the perfect nuanced take on foreign leaders who are under like U.S. attack. Like, mm. what if what if I praise Assad and he is bad? You know, and it, yeah. instead of thinking like they're being lied about, so that the largest power in the world can come down on them full boot and bomb, yeah. calm the hell down yeah. and defend him against the lies. This is not the this is not the time for your nuanced take on Venezuela. Let's fucking figure out what side. What, what is the actual implication of you being an idiot right now? Let's stop that. Stop that. Yeah. Exactly. Oftentimes, that form of chauvinism is a sort of subjectivist error in and of itself, right? It's like this, This not only do I know better than these people that I've in a country I've never been to, but I'll tell you exactly what my nuanced take is on Maduro <laughs> as he's trying to fight off right. a coup from the north. I mean, it's just, it's the most narcissistic thing you can do. Right, well, it's not even just like, this is what they should do in terms of foreign policy. I'll see people on the internet be like, this is how I would run the Venezuelan economy oh, and off. diversify <laughs> our investments in different industries. That's just like... Is that how? <laughs> I've taken four poli sci courses and I've studied to be an investment banker. I've got this. Well, and I bet, I bet not a damn one of them understands anything about CLAP. Is that the name of the program where yeah. they they say CLAP, uh, the communes, uh, the local distribution, any of that? They're just like, oh my god, they invested too much in oil. You can, you can, you, you know, and they just Bad. go off. Ugh. 
And you know, I I, sh- I shit on a lot of this stuff, um, but it doesn't come out of a place of of like you know sort of narcissism on my end because I I know no. this stuff because I lived through I was that yes. that Thank leftist you. for so many years, you know, <laughs> and I've had to do a lot of work to to get beyond that, and that required a lot of humility on my part. But you know, I I could at certain times in my political development was exactly one of these people that I'm shitting on. So this is not me attacking other people. This is in a lot of ways me attacking my own self at an earlier stage. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. I think that's a lot, yeah. Because I I think I'm the 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 worst case scenario of the group for sure. Because I was a uh, hardcore libertarian uh, for a long time. I worked for a Republican senator for a while. Uh, I was I was all on that side of it, and it's it's really any 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 time I I come at that snark, it is it is very easy to look online and see those people and go, oh my god, I'm so glad I wasn't hyper online right. at that time because <laughs> I would have said some of this dumb shit. Oh my god, I would have said that. Like, and anytime I engage with people on Twitter, I'm thinking, I'm like, man, I'm just hoping to get you to realize that you should have deleted this tweet like four <laughs> hours ago, and maybe you will, and this won't come back to haunt you because if I I, I have to purge my light like constantly because it is it's it's bad. You have to you. You you kind of forget it at a certain point on this because again it feels like I think that's the weird secret of Marxism. Even when I was a hardcore, you know, I was watching Milton Friedman videos every day because man, that was the shit. Man, I had a weird <laughs> college experience. Um, not, not everybody else watched Reagan's '64 National Convention speech on repeat. Christ. That was just me. Okay, cool. yeah, no, I hated myself. I, I had a weird. <laughs> trust me, I've had a lot of self crit to get here. Um, but it is. It's like it's like you get to this point. It's like. Well, shit. Yeah, I've read both sides of it. I know exactly what you're going to say on that side because I said that shit. I've read this side and I agree with it. You've only read your side and you're calling me an idiot. I've come on, like, just at least engage with me on the same level. At least pretend you have that level of intellectual curiosity instead of just dismissing it out of hand. And it's just like that. That I know I was you. Just please come with me. I, I promise <laughs> you, it's better on this side. Mm-hmm. We're gonna solve stuff. God damn. Yeah. There's kind of a difficult contradiction there, too, because you get the people that are wrapped up in their little bubble, and you're saying, you're in your little bubble, and then you change. So you are the one that knows both sides, and yeah. they're like, you're just wrapped up in a cult. You're just... Yeah. You're just yeah. What? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> exactly Again, the big, right. the big giant picture of Lenin above us doesn't help the cult thing, but you know what? Yeah. Okay, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a hit I will take. <laughs> All right, anybody else want to say anything else before I move on a little bit? Uh, uh yeah, I did have one other thing to, to break out there on the experience is uh, something it relates to. And now I'm trying to think. It was in my head now what we first said, and it was relating to protest. And now oh, I, he's I doing the hand gestures. All right, this is the time we move on, Brett. This is the time where you hit a, bu- you hit but, a bookmark button and you move past it because David has had a thought and it's gone. But it I happens feel, a lot. It's okay. But I feel like the, the kind of the subject we're on on uh, practice uh, versus knowledge and uh, – Oh, he's you know, doubling he, down. He's really going to come back and try to find I am, I am. No, he's going to get uh, it. He talks at the end about adventurism too. And so it makes me think, you know, something you deal with in protests is first you have you have the, the oh, my God, my property, you know, people that are like praise a march. Like we've accomplished something. We've marched people out there. Oh. Ta-da. Never ask like what the march does. And then on the other hand, you have adventurists that will hear like the MLK quote on like, you know, if a law is unjust, then it's just to break it and think my job is to get arrested without thinking like what the hell does that do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and this kind of helps you understand like. 
how we find the answer within that a little yeah. bit too is is the mix of practice and theory. Without theory, knowing our bigger goal, we don't know you know what we're going to do there. And without practice, we don't know that we can't look at someone breaking a window and go, "Oh my god!" You know, and that kind of. I've thing. got the vapor. David just keeps doing his. I have the vapors face, and I don't. I, I'm confused by it, but I'm okay here. Well, you, you know that MLK line about um, if it's, if a law is unjust, break it. I for years I used that as justification to smoke weed every single day because I was like, this law is unjust, and I am going yeah. to actively yeah. break it. I'm an activist. That is, ex- that is exactly what Dr. King had in mind when he was doing that. I believe. Yes, that is the correct interpretation. So I, I do want to read a quote because we were talking about. Um, leftists and stuff like that and you know this is this is a really great quote uh he talks about right and left deviation maybe we can talk about right deviation in a second but he says we are also opposed to left phrase mongering the thinking of quote-unquote leftists outstrips a given stage of development of the objective process some regard their fantasies as truth while others strain to realize in the present an ideal which can only be realized in the future they alienate themselves from the current practice of the majority of the people and from the realities of the day and show themselves adventurous in their actions. And he goes on to say, idealism and mechanical materialism, opportunism and adventurism are all characterized by the breach between the subjective and the objective, by the separation of knowledge from practice. And I think that's a wonderful way to understand, you know, we recently did a um, Lenin's left communism and infantile disorder. Yes. And they're get, they're, God, they're, yeah, they're getting at similar. Thank you. They're getting at similar things there. And I think that's really important for us to remember. Yeah. And I think the other thing that comes up in that quote, too, is sort of the part that doesn't, you know, you don't see it so much in this text, but you see it in the rest of Mao's work is that knowledge and practice also is related to the masses. Right. And this is where the mass line idea comes in and parallels this text really well, is this idea that it's not just in your practice, you're seeing which ideas work, but you're also seeing what the majority of people believe, what level of consciousness they have already. And you're having to adapt your practice and your ideas to where the people and the masses you're trying to organize are already at. And so that adventurism isn't just that you're not reflecting reality, but it also can be like this sort of displacement and uh, sort of distance from the people you're claiming to represent and want to organize. And so there's sort of also the mass line component, I think, too, that really fits parallel with this text really well. Absolutely. And I, I know I said this in our last episode, but like, you know, understanding the mass line as it comes out of this philosophy on practice and on contradiction, understanding that Mao put together an organizational strategy that was rooted in this dialectical philosophy <laughs> and, and it's worked yeah. so well, I think is really a testament to the power of this philosophy and just how much Mao himself was committed to putting this shit into practice. Yeah. Again, it goes back to that. We're not, you know, we're not reading Mao cause this, you know, it's, we're not reading a work about on practice because it sounds good in a vacuum. It's like, no, it established like the old, like one of the largest, you know, communist countries in the world and, and has come up with an underpinning that allowed it to, to survive as long as it has. I mean, that's, that obviously has an underpinning that is important to look at. And again, it's what Mao said. It's you look to the failures of someone else and you move forward. And me, I think me and David talk about this I, almost all the time, especially when I was working my way through all of my super bad takes and, uh, and <laughs> awful programming. Um, but just in the, again, every, every single country, every single group, every single community is going to almost self-determine in a different way. And it, you, you kind of don't get to comment on that to a certain extent, if you are on the outside to, if you are so far removed from it, it's, it's, you know, we, we, we tie it in again to Venezuela all the time because it's just the most recent one that we can talk to, but it, 
I if if I disagree with how they're doing it, that's fine. I'm not in Venezuela right now. I have no I can read everything I want to read about what's going on in there and and have as much of a good outsider but if I have if I'm not boots on the ground in the middle of it, you know, talking to it, I am I am literally to a certain extent just always going to be talking out my ass and I think it's we mm-hmm. we see it in in this country a lot and I think it's part of the disparity in our in in organizing it's what I I know it is my biggest failing and what I want to try and rectify is how how to convert all of this into actual useful action because I feel like I'm I uh, I, I suffer greatly from the I, I'm in the straight theory side of it and I I haven't been able to because of the fun greats of capitalism where it's like, yeah, I would love to inject myself into this. I'd also like to survive a little bit. And my job's not super great about giving me go out and agitate time. Um, so it's, it's, it's a weird, it's this weird push and pull of, of how do you, how do you have the right theory and then also back it up with the right practice so that you can keep moving forward. Cause I feel like we're kind of stuck right now in this country at least. Yeah. And, and I think maybe for more uh, universal practical uh, applications, since we're bringing up the mass line uh, before we went a little too far uh, down that rabbit hole there. Is, I have that tendency. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> uh, is something with the mass line a good thing to, to – and again, you know, I mean I, I said it earlier, not to, to be vulgar again, but this book is, is about smelling bullshit a little bit, you know. And so if you tie that back to the mass line, what's a big thing we've got to get people over today is their support of the troops and the cops and stuff mm-hmm. like that, yeah. right? <laughs> And so, of course, you're not going to have to you're going to have to be unapologetic when you say, you know, screw the troops. They're they're killers. Screw cops. You know, like you can't be apologetic. But you've got to know when someone tells you that, like, you just sound edgy if they're just trying to shut you up or if they're trying to help you and go, you're not getting through to the masses here. You you got to brand this a little bit better without doling the blade too much. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes me think of a lot of a lot of. Interesting things, and you were you were talking. So this is something I've been wrestling with, and I'm really interested to hear everybody's feedback on this, right? So you, you, we talk about organizing, and you know we all probably organize to different extents. Some places are harder to get it plugged in, some places are easier, etc. But I want to know what you guys' thoughts are on the role that what we're doing, which is basically political education, right, on our on our various shows. What role does that play? Because one way that I think about it with regards to these stages of cognition is that we aren't at the level where we have the ability to to organize on a national level. Like we're all local organizing. We're networking and stuff like that where the left is building itself, but it's not quite there yet. And so this stage of, of education may be an essential part to get to that higher level of organizing that we want, right? If we if we understand a lot of people in the U.S. mystified by ideology and we think of them in terms of this these stages, you could say, well, they're at the perceptual stage or sort of, you know, analyzing discrete events and not really have any understanding of the essence of things or how things are connected. And through our all of our political educational work, we're trying to get as many people who will tune in to take that, that, that jump from the perceptual stage to that higher stage where they understand the laws of capital, they understand the essence of things and how all these seemingly disparate struggles like race and and gender identity and class are all actually connected in really interesting ways and that may be you know get to a critical mass of of people at that level and that could spill over into more national party building stuff that we want to see what what are your thoughts on that 
Am I just rationalizing well, it to myself? No, it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's no. a good question. You're, you're, it's just such a big one. Um, right. I think you're doing everything that every person on the left, and it's cyber, especially every person on the left with a podcast is trying to rationalize <laughs> exactly. every day of our lives. Exactly. Mm-hmm. God damn it. Is this, you know, how... Uh, if everybody could just, like, have read everything and and understood everything, we'd be in such a good place. How do I make that happen? Well, I can't... They, f- they frown on me standing on the street corner and just reading Capital over and over to people. I've gotten yelled at for that, so don't do that. But no, it it is. I think it's and, – and I think we're – again, it's so hard to say because you live in your bubble and you live in your, your own day and age. You know, has it ever been like this before? Has it ever been this? But I feel like the the – the, especially in social media for all of its massive, horrible ills and awful things that it makes us do, um, does have that ability to, you know, you can kind of slow, it's going to take time, but that slow exposure to things that are, are would sound kind of crazy kind of helps drag people into that net. Again, it's how I got caught in. I was sitting on the, I was sitting very much on the outside looking at, all of fun communist Twitter going, oh my God, this is nonsense. I'm going to hate follow this and just watch for a while. This is fun. And then six months later, it's okay. All right. All right. Fine. I want to ask somebody about this. And then it's six months later. It's, oh, oh, dang. I was very wrong. Okay. I want to do something about this. And I don't know how else, I don't know how else to get people there organically. I don't know if there is a way to get people there organically because I, I think if you tried to force me down this road, I wouldn't have gotten there. Whereas if I came to it naturally and then had someone, thank God, like David sitting <laughs> close enough in my friend circle that I could ask, Hey God, please explain communism to me without making me feel like an idiot. Like that, that's what got it there. But you, I think it's, I think it's so hard to do. And I think there's the more forms of this we put out, the more likely we are to find someone that it resonates with that'll help. And David has a thought, and this is what's helpful about sitting in the room with him, is you can see the thought, and now he's going to express the thought. David, thought! <laughs> I was going to say that uh, that my idea is uh, really an idea of leapfrogging off, you know, whatever we can, okay? Because when you get people in the moment... Ooh, and when you get people in the moment, they're going to see things, they're going to feel things, they're going to understand things better. And um, I... I'm not going to act like this history is well written enough that that I know it as well. I'm usually pretty confident about my world events and history from what I know. Uh, but one I'm I'm a little vaguer on. But my understanding is a lot of people think like the Black Panther Party just like came out of the civil rights movement in general. And the way I've been led to believe is it almost definitely leapfrog off, say, the Watts Rebellion. You know, in L.A., um, we recently had Black Lives Matter become a, a big thing across the country. You know, I mean, it's taking these movements and driving something larger from it. And one of the ways we do it is to get everything out there we can. And that way, you know, someone can take the football and do like, say, a, a Fred Hampton, where they're, you know, they're on the ground. They're in this for the organizing purposes. And you can't get in the party unless you read X books. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, I obviously we all struggle with this question, I think. And I think part of, like, where I see the sort of educational podcast and left fitting in a way is, like, I think we have to be honest whether or not we think it's a good thing. There is a left-wing internet subculture, right? And there's levels to that, and I really think that on some level, like, meme culture actually has normalized communism for people in a way that we never really saw before because, you know, it just, you get used to seeing it. Um, and so I think part of what I hope that we're doing at least, is interjecting into that culture that already exists. And it's a culture that's frustrating in a lot of ways because it is disconnected from practice and trying to interject in a way where it's like, okay, so now you think communism is at least a tolerable idea. 
and you may have toyed around with it as like kind of an internet identity, but now what if you go to the next level and you actually study it and we try to give you the tools to do something with it? And so I guess I see us as hopefully filling that role. I mean, at the end of the day, you can listen to all of our podcasts and still choose not to go out and actually participate in class struggle and organizing, but I think that it can at least act as a bridge in between that sort of broader amorphous online left culture and actually engaging in the struggle. Yeah, I, that's that's insightful, and, and I agree. And you know, another thing is like not every single person um, out there in the world needs to be the best organizer, or even needs to be an organizer necessarily. Like, if this movement gets big enough, you're going to have just a huge chunk of any population that is just sympathetic to your cause, right? Mm-hmm. That you might have educated, but they're not active until the time comes when they need to be active. And and you know, it's hard to to see how big that segment of society actually is until the crisis comes. But I think on that level too, sometimes we overlook that. You know, there's a role to play there as well. Like we, we have to have people that are sympathetic to us, even if they're not outright organizers for when push comes to shove, they'll be more likely to take our side than our enemies, you know? And at the end of the day, I mean, I think you guys hit on it and I can't remember which episode it was, but early on, I mean, it's, I just kind of think, and I'm like, I, the need for, and I guess it was what is to be done then, it must have been, because it's the need for the part, and that took me a long time to get over, but there, that just seems to be the singular one thing that that, that that is missing right now, because it feels like you're on the precipice of a bunch of random events that are about to break out, and it's kind of spontaneous, you've got the yellow vest stuff, and then again, we had Occupy a couple of years ago... Well, oh God, it wasn't a couple of years ago. It was a hey, decade a ago. Oh, shit. Oh, God. <laughs> You're I'm old. old. I hate it. Oh, I hate this. Um, but it it's like, it, God, if there was just... These things are going to happen, and you need to be mm-hmm. ready for them. And the way you're ready for them is to have a group of people that understand, that can step in in those moments and go, hey, yes, you are pissed off. Here is exactly why you're pissed off. Um, and here is how we actually do something with it, and go. And it feels like we ha- keep having those moments explode and then and then kind of go away without anyone being able to take advantage of them in a positive way. And that's, I guess, the biggest frustration now looking back is it's like, ah, God, they've done a really good job of... of you know, beating down this cause to the point that there is no effective, even viable party of it right now where we can't take advantage of these, you know, this massive frustration that's growing. Just finishing off with Nathan said, hopefully what we're doing lays any kind of soil we can then for any kind of party to grow out of it. Because the better educated people are, the better the better they can, you know, take it and run and, and become this party. Also, at the rate of expansion we're going at with Left Podcast, I'm pretty sure in a couple years, we will just constitute a party unto ourselves. And so if we can just keep this spawn going of, I listened to Rev Left and that made me go to Painter and then we start a podcast, enough of us will happen that we can pay it forward, create a communist party, and we've just got it. We don't need anyone else. We're okay. So let's just keep that expansion rate going and we should be fine. It'll be a microphone and sickle party. It is. It is absolute. I want to find the pay it forward train of who listened to whose podcast first that ended up with, like, like. I, I want a pyramid scheme of podcasts of like, all right, Brett, you stop doing anything because you've just spawned enough of us now. That you don't have to. You don't have to do it anymore. Like Amway, this shit. Let's go. <laughs> That's hilarious. I, I do know. I do want to say though, like, you know, organizing, of course, is important. And insofar as we can get plugged in, we should. And we did a recent episode on Rev Left uh, with the Omaha Tenants United, and and that to me represents for people that that are finding it hard to get active in a meaningful way. That active that represents a very accessible, um, meaningful. Even if it's just in one tenant's life, 
you know, a change that you can make and get going in a, in a really meaningful direction. And so if, if people are really interested and maybe you live in a bigger city or you, you have a few friends that want to get active, but you don't have a lot of, let's say, money for overhead costs and stuff like that, you know, tenant organizing, even individual tenants can be a really great step in that direction and can really make a huge material impact in even a single working class person's life, which is huge. And then you can build off that and word of mouth spreads and people become interested in our politics because we're meeting their needs. And so we have to be attacking on all these fronts, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great example because I think it's something like 70% of people in the country are uh, renting right now. Holy shit. So that's an enormous right. amount of the population that you could tap into and go, look here, you're the working class. They're, you're getting exploited by these landlords. Let's get you protected. Let's take care of it. You know, and it's even something me and Nathan live out here in sub-rural Missouri, you know, a little bit outside of, of St. Louis County where it's far enough that – I mean, I drive in there for work. We can go in there and certainly help with stuff, but it's not like next door. Yeah. And yet we can see all around in our towns, yeah. you know, tenants everywhere. I mean, everywhere. there's all kinds of low-income apartments and things like that. And 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 both of us live in w- between two or three separate towns where there are two or three separate fun capitalist guys that everyone can name by name and point to <laughs> and go, these are the one asshole. It's like the most perfect yes. little microcosm <laughs> of capital. It's like, no, 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 look, I don't even have to go that far. It's that guy. He yeah, owns the bank. You know that, him. That he is owns the all the things. His name's on everything. Don't like him. That is the worst part about living in, in kind of these small towns is they have town celebrities. Oh, and you know who they are, and uh, they always suck. Yeah, every single time. Every single time. Allison? I don't think I have much to add. <laughs> <laughs> Not living in such a small town over here in L.A. So oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, very yeah, different yeah. experience with that. <laughs> Slightly different vibe, I'd imagine, yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, it, it's the same thing in terms of, you know, like, renting is such a thing, and actually there are multiple tenants unions here. L.A.'s, you know, the unique thing here, and having just moved back here, trying to figure out how to get involved in things, is that it's so spread out, and there's such little infrastructure from getting anywhere, that within the city you have multiple tenants unions just focusing on individual neighborhoods but they're actually doing really good work and starting to get pretty successful there's one in south central that's been doing a lot of work and has done several rent strikes now of a pretty sizable portion and it is cool to just see these populations that often haven't been organized get organized in the first time it's a little bit harder because it's you know more difficult to point to the one town celebrity in a you know what is it now like some million uh, population city but yeah yeah, the same thing is still happening Yeah, Yeah. and one of the arguments that was made in that episode by one of my guests was, you know, given the fact that we're sort of in the gig economy and that people don't, you know, back in the day, uh, labor organizing was easier because you could walk into a factory, you'd have thousands of people in this one factory, you could go on the factory floor, you could organize people, but given the nature of the economy today and sort of everybody has two jobs and a side hustle, it's very hard to get people on the same page like that, but what, what tenant organizing offers is oftentimes you'll find a bunch of people living either in a neighborhood or sometimes even in one building that that can act as the factory floor for a, a point of organizing, and they took their argument to say that tenant organizing is actually more effective and better right now than labor organizing and I'm not sure I'd take it all that way but I do I do totally accept and and I like this idea that tenant organizing offers this sort of coming together of regular working class people that could act as a factory floor today you know 
Yeah, no, it definitely plays a really big role. I think the, the difficulty for it in comparison to workplace organizing is that in the context of workplace organizing, it's not just that it's a site where you can meet people's needs, but if you can disrupt strategic workplaces, right, that disrupts the economy on the whole and gives you strategies during crisis, yep. which with tenants, I think, is a little bit harder to see how that would fit into a moment of exacerbating crisis if it became necessary. Yeah, great point. Like, like if you get the truckers to shut down or the longshore men mm-hmm. to stop unloading docks, yeah, I totally agree. I yeah. think it depends, though. And I think again, it goes to economies of scale. Again, and you, you in in this town, you know, in most towns, they're so diversified and so big that you know, again, you screw one landlord, does that screw everything up? No, probably right. not. Uh, I can guarantee you, in the town I live in, if I go screw <laughs> the biggest landlord, he also owns like eight other things, and that source of revenue might be important to him. So again, it is interesting just to see how, and I think that's the inter- the the most. The biggest takeaway I've had from all of this experience has been just there There are a billion different ways you can organize and that you can kind of poke at this system from within, especially if you're <laughs> fucking in the Imperial Corps. Um, and, and you just have to find the one that you are the most effective at and plug away at that. Because otherwise, it, it, again, you can get buried in an action of just, well, there's nothing I can do and I can't do anything. But that that's never going to ever move anything forward. And the more of this we do and the better you get at it in your own little sphere, well, then you're going to feel more comfortable going out into a difference and, you know, kind of keep putting yourself out there. And eventually you you talk to the podcast people that you listen to and go, hey, you want to come on our stupid show? And they say yes. And it's a nightmare. And it's, it's, you, you go through that. So, you know, everyone builds. Everything builds on itself. I think a big part of it, too, is like that sort of almost paralysis of like, I don't even know where to get started and I don't know what it is I can do. That's where I think Mao actually does have something to suggest, which is get out there and try to organize where you can. And if you fail, you've learned something. You've produced better knowledge, right? Because I think what Mao gets at in this text, and especially maybe more in a focused manner in a post-book worship, is this idea that all the reading in the world isn't going to give you the perfect strategy once you go out and do it. It's only investigating where you live, the specificities of that, the peculiarities of it, and then trying to change it that's going to lead to real knowledge in that context. And so I think really it's, yeah, we do all get overwhelmed and get paralyzed with that, but just getting out there and trying, even if it's a total failure, is going to build for bigger successes in the future. Mm, Beautifully said. All right, so let's just ramp down here. I think this is, we're 75 minutes, so this is probably be a good place to to stop. Does anybody, let's just go around one time around the horn and uh, anybody that has any last words or anything they want to say before we wrap up? Huge pleasure to do this. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Thank you, David. Thank you for starting that that way. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Holy crap. Um, no, I'd, I'd like to say, too, um, <laughs> since uh, since we were just talking about organizing and uh, since it's, it's out there in the real world, uh, something to consider in this world is um, how important transportation is is to, to people. And so if we're going to talk about like organizing and disruption and, and fight against like this, this huge gig economy, you know, maybe we've got to start experimenting the way Mao says on transportation, because it's clearly a transportation economy, but we don't know how disrupted that is because no one's gone that direction. And until we try and fail, we don't know how to do it or what we can do or what obstacles we have. For sure. Um, I, I, I will again, go back to the default of thank you guys so much for, uh, <laughs> for doing this. This is, I, I still don't fully understand why you agreed to it and I'm okay with it. Um, this is, this is surreal and awesome, but, uh, um, no, I get, I just think mo- mostly thank you because both of your work is what got helped get me into this space. And, uh, it, it's the first time I've not felt completely crippled, um, by, by just 
oh god, the world is ending and there's nothing I can do about it. And uh, for my own mental health, uh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> Allison? Totally. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, thank you for doing this with us as well. This has honestly been one of the most fun collab podcast things that I've done. And this has been, I think, really productive. I hope that people will yeah. find this to be useful. And, you know, we'll get people to read this text, which I'm yes. <laughs> trying to emphasize. It's and not yeah, that long, guys. It's super easy. Right, it's so short, and that's kind of what I want to say is, like, go study Mao. If you liked this conversation, there's a lot more out there. Most of his stuff is really short, because it's from lectures or party addresses, and most of it is this level of philosophical depth, and it's really worth reading, so I would definitely continue studying Mao if you found these ideas to be useful. Yep, and I would would echo all of that. I I love reading Mao. So accessible, so fascinating. It really makes you, you know, think about the world differently, and, you know, I was applying this sort of knowledge to, like, understanding climate change and, and how to address it and like i said earlier physics and parenting so just the breadth of of where this can be applied and how this can be applied is fascinating and it really is enriching um overall and then yeah i just want to say to mark's madness like both you guys are doing great i love your show um you guys are too humble saying why would we come on and talk to you it's a great time We're, we're we're in a room full of equals having a having a blast and hopefully educating people in the process so you guys are doing amazing work keep that shit up and let's let's collaborate collaborate in the future again because this is fucking fun Hell, yeah, this, this has been a super Definitely. fun. More, more in the future, guys. <laughs> All right. Good night to our listeners. Bye-bye.